Welcome to the age of information, where everyone is plugged in and knowledge is but a mere Google search away. From instant messaging to video calls to on-demand content and live streaming, the individual is now more than ever free of their physical shackles, capable of traversing vast distances and scouring through centuries of human history with a few simple clicks of the mouse. There is in this idea something deeply intoxicating about the tremendous leaps in innovation and technology and about the vast tools and power that we now possess at our fingertips. What marvels the human mind can produce and what wonder our imagination takes us. But the crazy part about this is that humanity has already progressed so far, but it feels like we are barely scratching the surface. With continuing innovation and development into groundbreaking technologies like blockchain, AI, and big data, what limits can we continue to transcend? First, it's automated cars and advanced image recognition. Next, it's interplanetary travel and space tourism. Who knows, maybe one day, within the next 50, 500, or even 1,000 years, might we even discover the cure for death itself? To escape the tragic certainty of our mortal coil? To relieve our souls of its physical cage? Eh, come on lah, that's a bit too much right? Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Welcome back, listeners. It's been a while since I've last uploaded any content, and I am feeling refreshed and recharged for the new year. So as you might have guessed from the opener, today we are going to be talking about the information age and big data in particular. But before we continue, I would like to introduce my co-host and co-conspirator just for this episode, John Wang. My name is John Wang. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I also have a podcast, The Longgang Kiddies. Now, the reason why John is presenting this with me is that he was the one who brought up the issue of big data in the first place, or actually more specifically, the perils of big data. Here, why don't we let him explain it? It was many years back when I was um, attending this conference. One of the things that piqued my interest was this term called the Internet of Things. Most people, they understand technological companies, they will store your personal data on some level. And what a lot of these tech companies were trying to do 
was to avoid double counting whenever they are trying to collect data on multiple so devices. Even from back then, this was about five years ago, they were trying to manage the Internet of Things. And it got me thinking about how this is just another example of tech companies further invading into our privacy. Now, of course, you could argue that, yeah, you know, big data sort of has the potential to make our lives a little bit better. But I also believe that with that, right, comes the flip side where it makes the invasion of our privacy that much easier. So that is what I believe the, the big deal is like, with big data. Now, before we jump into the depths unknown, I think we should start by asking some basic questions. You know, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page here. Um, questions such as, what the heck is big data anyway? Now, you probably all have heard the term big data. In fact, you're probably sick of hearing the term big data. Speaking here at a TED Talk in Berlin is Kenneth Kukie, senior editor at The Economist and New York Times bestselling author of the book Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think. In the past, we used to look at small data and think about what it would mean to try to understand the world. And now we have a lot more of it, more than we ever could before. What we find is that when we have a large body of data, we can fundamentally do things that we couldn't do when we only had smaller amounts. Big data is important, and big data is new. And when you think about it, the only way this planet is going to deal with its global challenges to feed people, supply them with medical care, supply them with energy, electricity, and to make sure they're not burnt to a crisp because of global warming is because of the effective use of data. At this point, you might be forgiven for thinking that Kukier was just some dreamy, self-important techno-optimist. But spare your judgment for just a moment, for what he's about to describe is one of the most important developments in modern history. So what is new about big data? What is the big deal? Well, to answer that question, let's think about what information looked like, physically looked like in the past. Okay, in 1908, on the island of Crete, archaeologists discovered a clay disk. They dated it from 2000 BC, so it's 4,000 years old. Now, this is what information used to look like 4,000 years ago. This is how society stored and transmitted information. Society hasn't advanced all that much. We still store information on disks, but now we can store a lot more information, more than ever before. Searching it is easier, copying it is easier, sharing it is easier, processing it is easier. And what we can do is we can reuse this information for uses that we never even imagined when we first collected the data. In this respect, the data has gone from a stock to a flow, from something that is stationary and static to something that is fluid and dynamic. The disk that was discovered off of Crete that's 4,000 years old is heavy. It doesn't store a lot of information, and that information is unchangeable. By contrast, all of the files 
that Edward Snowden took from the National Security Agency in the United States fits on a memory stick the size of a fingernail. At the heart of every economic decision are constraints. These are the boundaries that are present in any given situation, and any attempt at trying to rationalize economic change would be meaningless without first understanding what these constraints are. In the days of 2000 BC, these came in the form of things like storage, copying, sharing, or processing. It wasn't like the ancient Greeks didn't know or want to use data for their decision-making as compared to, say, asking the gods for help, but given the constraint of the clay disk, it just simply wasn't feasible. But witness what happens when you remove or lower these boundaries. With the invention of computers and databases, information can now be stored and analyzed with ease. Myth and prayer gave way to models and regressions, and entire industries, from food to fashion to finance, experienced the seismic shifts, while hordes of analysts, statisticians, and data scientists took center stage. If there was ever a defining feature of the modern age, it would have to be our incessant drive to continually tear down the boundaries to information. Faster networks, greater storage, unlimited data packages, these are all part of the constraint-lowering process, making the access and availability of information cheaper and cheaper to the point where even individuals like you and me can possess a tremendous amount of it. In other words, in this day and age, guesswork is just not feasible anymore when your biggest constraint is your willingness to reach inside your pocket. But this development is only the first part of the big data revolution, and as technology continued to change, so did the very nature of data itself. In a 2001 research publication by the global advisory firm Gartner, big data can be characterized by three distinct qualities, what they describe as the three Vs of big data. You've got velocity, which describes the growing speeds at which data is processed. Certainly, you can imagine how much quicker you can process information from a database rather than from stone tablets or cave paintings. You've got variety, where advances in storage and analytics have allowed us to capture all kinds of information from location to facial features to even phone usage behaviors. And then you have volume, where our increasingly digital world has resulted in an exponential explosion in how much data is being generated and collected today. And when you take into account all of these changes, we can start to consider a different fee. Value. So what is the value of big data? Well, think about it. You have more information. You can do things that you couldn't do before. Such as? Now think, for example, of the issue of posture, the way that you are all sitting right now. The way that you sit, the way that you sit, 
the way that you sit. It's all different, and it's a function of your leg length and your back and the contours of your back. And if I were to put sensors, maybe a hundred sensors, into all of your chairs right now, I could create an index that's fairly unique to you, sort of like a fingerprint, but it's not your finger. So what could we do with this? Researchers in Tokyo are using it as a potential anti-theft device in cars. The idea is that the carjacker sits behind the wheel, tries to stream off, but the car recognizes that a non-approved driver is behind the wheel, and maybe the engine just stops unless you type in a password into the dashboard to say, "Hey, I have authorization to drive." This is probably the most prominent value proposition when it comes to big data, and if you've been paying any attention, you can notice how pervasive it's become in our daily lives. You wake up and your phone alerts you as to whether you'll need to bring an umbrella today. You open Spotify and the next track is already curated for you. You're waiting for the bus and Google Maps can tell you when it will arrive with near precision. You open Facebook and you see an ad for the pair of shoes you were looking up yesterday. With more information, services and products are able to be customized down to the individual level, which means no more flipping TV channels hoping to land on something you like, and no more settling for second best when you have the minority preference. In this day and age, everyone gets their own slice of pie. But to some extent, we already have a bunch of that today. So. Is that all there is to it? One of the most impressive areas where this concept is taking place is in the area of machine learning. Okay, machine learning is a branch of artificial intelligence, which itself is a branch of computer science. The general idea is that instead of instructing a computer what to do, we are going to simply throw data at the problem and tell the computer to figure it out for itself, and it'll help you understand it by seeing its origins. Okay. In the 1950s, a computer scientist at IBM named Arthur Samuel liked to play checkers, so he wrote a computer program so he could play against the computer. He played, he won. He played, he won. He played, he won. Because the computer only knew what a legal move was. Arthur Samuel knew something else. Arthur Samuel knew strategy. So he wrote a small subprogram alongside it, operated in the background, and all it did was score the probability that a given board configuration would likely lead to a winning board versus a losing board after every move. He plays the computer. He wins. He plays the computer. He wins. He plays the computer. He wins. And then Arthur Samuel leaves the computer to play itself. This now. Is the next major ongoing development in big data, and quite frankly, it's terrifyingly wonderful. In 2017, a group of researchers submitted a paper to the Cornell University Library detailing how a refurbished AI program named AlphaZero went from scratch to beating the world champion chess program Stockfish 8. The kicker here is that AlphaZero was not given any human input apart from the basic rules of chess. It just simply got better by playing itself over and over with self-reinforced knowledge. The time it took to accomplish this incredible feat was just under four hours.
We have come to a point in human civilization where even the constraints of our most brilliant of mental faculties, the very source of all the art and culture and innovation and technology that we see today, can be overcome. This is why Kukier believes that big data can solve humanity's problems, for machine learning has the potential to bring about a limitless number of marvels and wonders that we could have never ever dreamed of, precisely because our constraints would never allow it. What a truly terrifyingly wonderful thought indeed. It plays itself, it collects more data. It collects more data, it increases the accuracy of its prediction. And then Arthur Samuel goes back to the computer and he plays it and he loses. And he plays it and he loses. And he plays it and he loses. And Arthur Samuel has created a machine that it surpasses his ability in a task that he taught it. And this idea of machine learning is going everywhere. How do you think we have self-driving cars? Are we any better as a society of enshrining all the rules of the road into software? No. Memory is cheaper? No. Algorithms are faster? No. Processes are better? No. All those things matter, but that's not why. It's because we changed the nature of the problem. We changed the nature of the problem from one in which we try to overtly and explicitly explain to the computer how to drive to one in which we say, here's a lot of data around the vehicle, you figure it out. But no matter how wonderful or groundbreaking these developments are, there is one constraint that will always hold true. There is no such thing as a free lunch. This is where John comes in. So what most tech companies are doing now is actually looking at your search history because that is where you are actually entirely being truthful. But what if I were to tell you that companies can even boil down your personality traits, they can know who you are voting for. So these are invasion of privacy going on at a level which we don't even begin to comprehend or understand. It's not looking very good, lah, for in my opinion. I just think that the, the convenience that it provides is not worth the, the invasion of privacy that it potentially has. Dude! I'm telling you, man, you wouldn't believe some of the things that's happening these days. Wait, really? Yeah, have you heard of the Candid controversy? Now we're ready to dive into the deep end. So it started back in 2013 under a different name. It's called Diary. Uh, it was created, founded by this lady called Bindu Reddy. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, they changed their name to Candid. And this was around the time as well they started pushing their product very aggressively. Hmm. So basically what it's supposed to be is a, is a mobile app that promised quote-unquote anonymous discussion and debate. And what they did was they started pushing this product out through YouTubers. Introducing Candid, the brand new social media app that allows you to share your opinions completely anonymously and debate with other anonymous users. Feminist? 
Candids for you. Anti-feminist? Candids for you. Conspiracy theorist? Candids for you. Candid is a more secure and fun way to speak your mind in this ever-growing politically correct society. No longer will you have to fear unnecessary consequences for your opinions. There was this big swing in the cultural revolution in the American landscape at that point where it was like, oh, you know, um, political correctness is killing us and it's, uh, it's, it's suppression of free speech, so on and so forth. So a lot of the so-called free speech advocates on YouTube were promoting this product aggressively and in the end, what it turned out to be, right, was Candid is a natural language process processor. Mm-hmm. And... It, it was basically a machine that was designed to try and filter out things like hate speech, slander, threats, and other negative uh, form of, of speech or dialogue. Hmm. And the way that they are trying to... So with machine learning, you give it certain parameters, right? And then what you have to do subsequently is to feed it a lot of data. You have to continuously give it data, data, data. Hmm. And so all these free speech advocates on YouTube will, will use the platform, start spewing whatever, like their content, whatever it is that they were doing, okay? And then the machine in turn would learn the, the language that's being used for certain type of speech and then gave badges to the users based on whatever type of words they use so including the syntax and whatever so the, the language structure the, the the sentence structure the syntax so and so forth at the end of it what they were trying to accomplish was using AI to differentiate between un- unwanted opinions and to suppress discussion and to generally censor right wing uh, or the conservative voices on the internet uh-huh. wow. we were just played like, everyone was played and everyone just fell into their hands. So this was one of the things that uh, sort of reignited my my uh, investigation into machine learning and big data. All of this is not it's not capable by human hands. Like you cannot have like an army of, of guys and gals sitting at their desktop and combing through every tweet, every comment on the internet. There's no way. Right. Right. Not especially not on the social media. So how do they differentiate? How do they how do they determine what should be banned and what shouldn't be banned? What should be throttled and what shouldn't be throttled? All of this is machine learning, and they are getting better and better. They are they, in the past it was it was terrible. They, people were getting banned for no reason, and the machines they cannot differentiate between context, right? They they don't know what's the difference between a joke and a malicious intent. Right. But over time, all of these barriers will be broken down, and with our help. Right, we are because we are we are the one that's feeding all this data into the machines. Yeah, and eventually they will be able to differentiate it even better than we can. As we continued talking, it was hard not to draw similarities between Candid and the infamous Cambridge Analytica case along the themes of deception and breach of trust. But what was also becoming increasingly apparent was that there are now potentially bigger things at risk. The Candid case showed how speech could be policed and filtered with the aid of machine learning. But this next case is a little 
more sinister. So BetterHelp was the straw that broke the camel back for me, lah. Because it 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 made me sick. Like this case made me sick. Mm-hmm. Um. So what it is? It's an online platform supposedly to connect people who are in need of some sort of therapy and mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you were having some sort of depressive episode or maybe you're a little bit suicidal, something like that, or you're having some sort of anxiety, if you log on to BetterHelp, the company promised that they will match you up with a healthcare professional that will be able to talk to you 24-7, so and so forth. Mm. And at a, at a very low price compared to traditional therapy, you know, the face-to-face therapy where it can be several hundred dollars per hour. Can you see where this is going? So once again, they, they targeted YouTubers and then they got YouTubers to talk about their their own mental health and talk about how BetterHelp has helped them with those episodes. So the whole thing blew up in a big way. After a few other YouTubers, they were, they were looking into the terms of service and they were digging up the company history and they were looking through all the comments and the, the feedback and all that. What they discovered was like, for example, some of them were actually actors. They were just paid actors, but they have never used the service. They're just actors. Uh, conversely, the the negative feedbacks, they were all buried. They were all deleted to the point where somebody had to go and create like another page or another Facebook site to host all the negative feedback about BetterHelp. Uh-huh. Um, about how they are basically, their, their pricing plan was, was just terrible. Um, how their therapist was, uh, was pretty awful. One of the therapists was actually indicted for rape. Wow. Okay. But the, 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 the part that made me really ill, like physically ill, was like I mentioned earlier, was they did not establish doctor patient confidentiality. Mm-hmm. On all your mental health issue is, has to go through this app. The question is, why doesn't the term of service guarantee that no other company will have access to all this information? Hmm. Okay, because this was not there. At the point in time, uh, they did not have all of this confidentiality clause. Okay. They, I think they changed it once everything sort of blew up, but at that point in time, it, it wasn't there. Okay. To the point where even their most ardent defenders they had to come out and say, okay, this is kind of fishy. Mm-hmm. Right? So, it was at this point in time when there was there was like a bunch of people on the internet. They were making, they were making another connection. Mm-hmm. Of course, what I'm about to say next, there's no actual hard evidence for it. But the, the timing of it seems very, very coincidental. So, the whole thing about Better help with I mean this whole thing exploded around October 2018 mm-hmm. right now back in 2017 okay the towards the end of 2017 Forbes released a article saying that Facebook had a conference with various advertisers and marketers and one of the things that was being said in the conference right was that they are trying to use lexicon analysis to target depressed, anxious, insecure and defeated users as young as 16. So this was this was like almost verbatim what they what they were saying and this was in uh, Forbes mm-hmm. published in Forbes. 
I suppose my gripe with it is that I mean you're targeting vulnerable people like these are people who are maybe at the lowest point in their lives mm. and don't forget you know now they can know your location they, they will know by the words that you choose to use in whatever comments or in whatever context right when exactly is your low point mm. right because it, it for most people who are mentally ill it's up and down right? it's just hills and troughs yeah and they can now specifically target you at your lowest yeah because they know your location they know the time and they know the place yeah and so I think this adds another layer to the whole thing uh, in a way that none of us have really ever considered it either now before we continue I would just like to reiterate that this is speculation and discussion. And while BetterHelp has had and perhaps in some way earned its fair share of controversy, I don't think it is fair to just one-sidedly disparage the company. After all, there is a whole other side to BetterHelp, about how it has increased access to therapy and benefited millions, about how it has reinforced its data privacy and patient confidentiality terms, and last but not least, about how its embattled CEO and founder, Alan Mattis, got caught in a whirlwind YouTube controversy. Nonetheless, there is a larger point to all the conspiracies, which is that in this modern age, the tools for gathering and capturing data are only going to get better and better, meaning that whoever possesses these tools will now have access to an incredibly valuable treasure trove of information. What they decide to do with this then is where the really ominous consequences potentially lie. This is the sticking point of big data. And it's a recurring theme that we've seen time and time again with regards to technology and innovation. With the benefit of hindsight, we can look back at the various inventions of the past and see all the good and wonder that it has brought to humanity. Think of medicines, political systems, operating processes, and many, many more. However, what tends to be buried beneath the narrative of progress are its costs. And to just illustrate an example, just because it is blatantly obvious that the electronic spreadsheet was better for accounting than recording on paper, doesn't mean that the hordes of traditional accountants who lost their jobs and their livelihoods didn't suffer. This is the harsh truth of progress. In order for something to advance, something else must make way as sacrifice. And in the coming 50, 500, or 1,000 years, big data will be driving much of these advances, and we will be witness to these sacrifices. Already we've seen privacy being pawned off to the highest bidder, or how workers are losing their jobs to automation, but with recent implementations like China's social credit system or whatever new marvel that AI and machine learning brings, who knows what else the future might hold. For the majority of these innovations, the net result will undoubtedly be beneficial. 
and humanity will celebrate and we will prosper, and hindsight and our future history will likely spin the same tale that it has always had. But the enormous potential of big data has potentially enormous sacrifices. We've already seen what Candid can do to free speech, and it is not implausible to imagine other existential threats as well, such as to free will, to moral choice, to human volition, or to human agency. I can only hope for our sake that when these threats do inevitably come, that we may make the right judgment calls and preserve what is most important to us. And for those that must be sacrificed, that they will not be forgotten. So, yeah, there you have it. The economics of big data. All the constraints, the potential benefits, costs, and every frightening gigabyte in between. However, before we leave, John has some parting words to perhaps soothe our concerns a little. <sighs> Alright, um... Are you depressed yet? I'm <laughs> squirming in my seat, man. <laughs> yeah, so you, you mentioned that you have a sort of solution. Uh, yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? So, to give a little bit of context, let me first talk about uh, Microsoft Day. <laughs> okay, so uh, Microsoft Day was this online Twitter bot, and then um, it went from humans are super cool, like posting this in a tweet. Yeah. Uh, but in under 24 hours, <laughs> it went to Hitler did nothing wrong. <laughs> It went to this super <laughs> Nazi, you know, human-hating, Jew-hating bot in less than 24 hours. Right. right. And the reason this can be done is because of data corruption. Hmm. So what this Microsoft AI was trying to do was aggregate data from its immediate surroundings, so-called, like the, its immediate network. Mm-hmm. And what people were doing was to, to go onto Microsoft Day and start posting and start shit posting, right? right? And start saying things like Hitler did nothing wrong, you know, gas the Jews, whatever, like all this like heinous shit, right? And at that point in time, the machine didn't know any better. They couldn't differentiate any any of these things. Uh-huh. So once Microsoft caught wind of what's going on, and then it got terminated. The, the, the Microsoft day was killed off. Mm. But I think to illustrate the proposed solution that I'm I'm uh, suggesting. Mm-hmm. If there was some sort of machine, there's some sort of app, right? There's some or some sort of program that could corrupt all outgoing data. Yeah. A bit like how app blocker will block ads from playing. Yeah. Right. Now, if a website suddenly comes up to you and says you have to disable your data corruptor to visit this website, okay, suddenly you have a better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Right. Like at least you know, like this. This data corruption thing is not going to be a permanent solution, and sometimes it's not even the best solution because sometimes we want our data to be in the hands of companies. Right. It's done voluntarily and it's done with transparency. Right. It's not necessarily just a bad thing; it can be a good thing. But we have to know about it. We have to understand it. Hmm. And the companies themselves need to be completely transparent about what is it they're doing with our data. Hmm. So, 
at least with regards to the soft data lah. the hard data you can't do anything about but with regards to the soft data you definitely can try and corrupt that data so that the companies that are using it they will no longer know if it's accurate or not and then they might just abandon the idea altogether or they are forced to become transparent to gather better data and with that brings the end to today's episode thank you thank you thank you so much for tuning in and a huge thanks to john as well for suggesting the topic and for coming on the show if you haven't already please go and check out the longkang kitties podcast they are an awesome group of guys and gal and make for some fantastic audio companionship for your runs or your commutes all right music for this episode was brought to you by lee rose veer podington bear blue dot sessions david sieste and flamingosis in collaboration with Birocratic, whose incredible track, Flight Fantastic, you're listening to right now. If you're interested, all the links to the tracks used as well as to the research material will be posted in the website at www.economicalricepodcast.com. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or feedback, or if you would like to present a topic just like how John has on this episode, please, please, please feel free to send me an email or to message me through any of the social media links in the description. Once again, thank you so much for listening. This has been your host, Danny, for the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Capitalism.